Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello again and welcome back once more to episode 24 of Signals to Danger. As I do every episode, I am going to thank you again for your downloads, your shares, your likes and your interaction on social media. And if you do want to come along and join me in those conversations... You're going to find the podcast at, at Signals to Danger on Twitter and me at, at Daniel Fox Rail. We're also on Facebook and Instagram as well, but uh, Twitter's probably where I'm most active. As ever again, I'll remind you about the website, that's signalstodanger.com, and on there you're going to find show notes, transcripts, and the shop and more. And if you do want to support the podcast, you can do. There's a link on there for the Patreon, and I would love to take the opportunity to thank all of the Patreons who've signed up so far for their support. Now, <clears throat> it has come to my attention that <laughs> there was a, a little bit of a faux pas in the most recent episode, the one covering Morton on Lug. Now, in the past, if I'm not overly confident or overly sure on uh, how to pronounce somewhere, I will genuinely go on YouTube, watch a video that has its name in, and practice a couple of times. But sometimes I'm quietly confident that I'm probably going to be able to figure it out. And with that in mind, several tweets and comments on forums have led me to believe that I may actually owe the people of a uh, of a town an apology. So, I would like to formally apologise to the people of Lemster for repeatedly pronouncing Leo Minster. So, once again, a very heartfelt apology to the people of Lemster. And with that, almost well, reminded me of the government and apology. Anyway, with that out of the way, let's let this episode begin. An evening commute home had turned thoroughly to disaster. Police carried stretchers covered in white sheets through the trees. The carriages of a passenger train lay scattered across a cutting, and it was clear that something terrible had taken place. The year is 1984, and the place, Polmont. 
crushed one on top of another. Investigators at the scene searched through the wreckage for the engine. A point's failure. This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have taken place in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. My name is Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but I'm going to be today the person who's taking you through this podcast. Every episode we start by briefly revisiting the events that were taking place at the time, and well, this episode, unsurprisingly, is no different, so it's time for us to have a look at 1984. January sees the launch of the FTSE 100, something which I have very little knowledge about, but I think it tells us which of the companies on the London Stock Exchange are having a good time. And speaking of things I don't really get, February sees Torval and Dean win gold for ice skating at the Winter Olympics in Sarajevo. March sees the miners' strike begins and pits the National Union of Mine Workers against Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government intent on reform of the nationalised industries, which includes plans for the closure of most of Britain's remaining coal pits. April brings us two very significant deaths. Firstly, the comedian Tommy Cooper tragically collapsed on stage during a live television broadcast at the age of 63, and two days later, WPC Yvonne Fletcher was shot and killed by a gunman outside the Libyan embassy in London. Skipping ahead to September... We see Princess Diana give birth to Henry Charles Albert David, although we all know him better as Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex. October sees the launch of a classic kids' TV show enjoyed by many adults, Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends, a staple of my own childhood, certainly, and something I'm gently trying to get my daughter into. To close the recap of the year, we were asked a question that we've heard Every single year since. Do they know it's Christmas time at all? As Band-Aid goes straight to number one. 1984. An exciting year with a lot going on. But as ever, for the purposes of this episode, we need to narrow down those 365 days to just one. The 30th of July. Some time ago now, we discussed a cold winter's night in 1937. As snow fell and visibility dropped, an express passenger train smashed into the rear of a stationary train at 70 miles an hour. 35 people lost their lives and carriages ended up piled on top of each other. This disaster took place at a small Scottish station which no longer exists, Castlecarry. The station at Castlecarry, as well as its good yard, are now gone, replaced by housing and industrial users. In 1967, it closed, in line with sweeping cuts made across the network at the behest of a certain doctor that will remain unnamed. The line, however, is very much still in place, and trains rattle through several times an hour, but no longer stop. While Castlecarry may have failed the profitability test, the line itself didn't the Glasgow to Edinburgh via Falkirk. 
These two cities are probably one of the most catered-for pairings of cities in the country as far as rail links go. You could travel via Cumbernauld, you could use the North Clyde line, the Schotts line, you could travel via Carstairs. But despite these four other options, the principal route will take you via Falkirk. This route holds the flagship shuttle services between Edinburgh's Waverley and Glasgow's Queen Street stations. The route itself is not without some fairly substantial historical significance on top of the mantle of the flagship services. It actually formed Scotland's first intercity rail route, opening on the 2nd of February 1842 as the Edinburgh and Glasgow Railway. The line performed brilliantly as people latched onto the new technology and connectivity grew and grew and in 1865, the North British Railway absorbed the Edinburgh and Glasgow into their expanding operation. Once this took place, the North British quickly used the line as the trunk route between the two cities, and as the railways developed, the Big Four were formed, and the North British was in turn absorbed by the London and North Eastern, which was the guise the line was under at the time of the accident at Castle Carry. Progress is progress, and in turn, LNER gave way to British Railways, and in 1848, the national body took responsibility for railways up and down the nation, including Scotland. Standardised stock and methods of work replaced the individual practices of the separate railways. To continue our brief history lesson, and I promise we are coming to an end very soon, in 1983, British Rail handed its Scottish services as ScotRail, a name that has stuck around ever since, although in slightly separate guises. This was the state of play in 1984, when the events of this episode take place. So, I hear you ask yourself, why have I spent the last few minutes talking to you about the history of Castle Carry, a place we've thoroughly visited all the way back in episode 9? Well, because it's also the history of a piece of railway ten miles to the east, in the town of Polmont. While the station at Castle Carry didn't survive the culling brought about by cost-saving measures, Polmont did, and it continued to form one of the stops on the increasingly busy commuter services between the cities of Edinburgh and Glasgow. The steam-hauled services gave way to dieselisation in the late 50s, when diesel multiple units were introduced, but over time the increasing usership and the prestige of the route meant that by the end of the 60s they were perceived as just being inadequate. The answer that BR needed was to add capacity, power and speed. So to do this, they decided to introduce locomotive hold stock, but that brought with it its own issues, the need to run around. That's not some insatiable requirement to play, but rather a railway operation that formed a major part of operations at terminus stations. Locomotives haul trains from the front, and when they arrive at the end of the line, the locomotive is the first thing that arrives in the platform. This is fine, and not really a problem unless you want to run that train out again, which, let's be fair, you always do. What you end up with is a locomotive at the wrong end of the train, and you just can't reverse a train at line speed. The... It doesn't work. The answer to the problem is that the reason you actually see um, a set of points right at the end of the bay platforms, and realistically, as far as today's railway goes, they don't seem to have any purpose. But... In practice, in the past, they did. 
What actually took place is that the locomotive would be uncoupled from the front of the train, and then, by virtue of these sets of points, it would shunt onto the opposite track and run around the train. It would then shunt back onto the same track, sometimes via a short spur called a head shunt, draw back down onto the carriages and be recoupled before taking the train back out on the return journey. A very effective method, but one that takes some time and actually does have its own risks. You need people down in the forefoot between two trains as you're crashing them into each other at low speed and connecting them. Also at other stations, the, the process just wasn't that easy to deliver. For example, at Glasgow, the station was approached in a tunnel and that limited the options for head shunts or extensive point work. And all of this coupled together means that for a flagship route such as the Edinburgh to Glasgow, which required reliable, fast, frequent services, a better solution needed to be found. The initial solution came about in the form of doubling up locomotives. Trains used on this route for a number of years were top and tailed with locomotives, one at each end of the train. These were Class 27s, and the coaching stock that was used was fitted with the equipment needed to allow both locomotives to be controlled from the lead cab of the train. And for pretty much the entirety of the 70s, these top and tail trains were the power on the Falkirk route. This heavy use, though, had taken its toll on the stock, and by 1979, well, they were just increasingly prone to failure, so a replacement was needed. The decision was taken to replace the pairs of 76-tonne, 1,200-horsepower Class 27s with a single 125-tonne, 2,600-horsepower horsepower, sorry, Class 47 locomotive. Class 47s had been in use since the 1960s, and, well, they'd shown their worth and reliance on traffic up and down the country. In total, 512 of them were constructed, and indeed... 78 of them still exist as Class 47s today. 34 of them are on the main line, holding operational status, and the rest are heritage, but 78 locomotives still exist. So it's fair to say the 47 was a reliable piece of kit. Replacing the 27s with these 47s definitely solved the reliability issue, but... The question needed to be asked, would BR be doubling these up, top and tailing them like the 27s? No, they wouldn't. I mean, 5,000 horsepower would be fairly excessive for a, a passenger service like this. A single Class 47 was easily capable of hauling them at 95 mile an hour back and forth between the two cities. So now we're left with the same problem again, though. How do we stop the locomotives from needing to run around? To answer that question, we're going to drag our story back to the 30th of July, 1984. The popularity of the route between Edinburgh and Glasgow and the relatively short journey time meant that we would well, we would say that there were very strong passenger floats between the two cities, meaning that it was incredibly popular. And like most pairings of cities, peak times were where you'd see the heaviest passenger floats. At 17.30 on the 30th of July, just one of these peak time trains was due to depart Edinburgh to take the weary from work home to Glasgow. 
The power for the train on the day was provided by 47707, and on this date it had pulled the train into Edinburgh a little earlier on. Behind it were five Mark III carriages, four standard class and one first. But at half past five, this service was due to head back west, leaving Edinburgh the same direction it had arrived from. The Class 47 was the only locomotive on this train, a second wasn't coupled to the other end. Nor was 707 going to run around and be attached to the other end. That's because the locomotive was not going to pull the train back to Glasgow. It was going to push it. But with a line speed of 95 mile an hour and five carriages full of commuters to look after, it's clear this was not going to be done with the driver sticking his head out of the window and looking over his shoulder like some extravagant reversing manoeuvre. So this is where we introduce British Rail's answer to the problem. The DBSO. Many carriages on the BR network were known by abbreviations. Certain letters tended to denote characteristics of the vehicles in question. So with regards to the DBSO, the B stands for brake. The vehicle had a brake compartment. The S, standard. Standard class accommodation. And O, open. The carriage didn't have any compartments for passengers. It's what you'd expect to see from your average passenger carriage nowadays. So that's three out of four explained, but what about the D? Driving. When the decision was taken to put Class 47s onto the Edinburgh-Glasgow services, provision needed to be made for the return journeys. In 1979, 10 brake standard open, BSO, Mark II carriages were converted into DBSOs. Control equipment, horns, additional lighting and equipment known as TDM were all added to the carriages, which essentially turned them into control cabs. The TDM, or Time Duplex Multiplexing, equipment allowed the controls in the cab to control the locomotive remotely from the other end of the train by sending pulsed signals through the lighting circuits of the carriages. These signals were then decoded and used to control the loco. All of a sudden, you don't need a locomotive at each end to get the capacity and speed benefits of loco all stock. And so at 17.30 on the 30th, when the driver tenant in charge of the Glasgow Express slowly took his train out of Edinburgh, he did so from a driving seat in a carriage which also included an awful lot of passenger seats, not the locomotive that he was actually controlling. He built up his speed, leaving the Scottish capital, and continued west towards the first stop on the route, Linlithgow. The fateful journey had begun. Tennant brought the train to a stand at Linlithgow to allow passengers to alight. The way the control system was set up meant that the locomotive power controls were sent via the TDM system. So on the approach to the station, Tennant reduced the power using the lever in the DBSO. The TDM system carried this signal along the length of the train and the throttle closed on the loco. The brakes, however, were controlled directly from the driving end of the train. The system only worked by opening a valve and venting air to the atmosphere, so this could be done locally without the need to use the complex TDM kit. A brief stay at Linlithgow allowed passengers on board the train to get a boff, get off, or other passengers to get on, heading home from the station or continuing their journey towards Glasgow. As the train departed Linlithgow, the speed increased, approaching the station at Polmont and passing through it at 85 miles an hour. 
In the platform opposite was the Up Express from Glasgow, headed back to Edinburgh. The time was around 17.53, just before 6pm on a Monday evening. As the train passed through Pormont, it entered a left-hand turn and then a gentle right. Halfway around this bend, Tennant caught sight of a cow stood on the tracks around 400 yards ahead. He hit the emergency brake and immediately took the power lever down to zero. Seconds later, the front of the DBSO collided with the beast at a speed of around 85 miles an hour. The cow had weighed around 400 kilos and the train, well, 315 tonnes. Despite this difference in mass, however, a few metres on from the point of impact, the leading end of the train left the rails. Over the course of the next 120 metres, the leading end of the DBSO derailed further and further to the left, and then veered up the bank of the cutting, its leading end smashing through a wall and into a tree. It turned onto its right-hand side as the rest of the train dragged it around. The sheer force of the accident separated the rear of the DBSO from the rest of the train, but not before it had pushed the leading end of the second coach off and up the the opposite cutting side. The rest of the train again continued forward, although the energy was quickly being dissipated by the damage being caused. The second coach turned around end for end, as though it was a toy spun by a child as the rest of the train continued along, derailed but in line. At the same time, the DBSO ended up on its side, cab facing back towards Edinburgh, with its floor pointed towards the remains of the train, sliding a further 100 metres along the edge of the cutting. By the time everything finally stopped moving, every vehicle of the train was derailed, but some received far less damage than others. The loco and its rearmost coach were both repairable, The next coach up was heavily damaged due to the fact that one end of the second carriage had become embedded in its leading end as it came back down the embankment. The middlemost carriage, fourth vehicle overall of the train, was relatively undamaged, but this was not shared by the last three vehicles. Carriage 12006, originally the third vehicle of the train overall, now lay at the very head of the train. It had heavy body damage at the front end, and at either side, caused by striking the DBSO and the second carriage as each had somersaulted off to the left and right. All the below-floor modules, containing air conditioning units, batteries, etc., were ripped off the second coach. The body and the body pillars were bent, and the body was twisted by 35 degrees from true. The buffers, gangway and headstocks were badly bent, and the underfloor panelling torn and pushed up. The DBSO lay alongside the third coach. Its body and underframe were severely damaged and its bogies missing. This vehicle would never leave this place, so severely damaged that it would eventually be cut up on site. Rapidly approaching Palmont was a second train, an express travelling in the opposite direction under the command of a driver called Fitzpatrick. As he approached a double yellow signal, still clearing after the last eastbound train, he was travelling at 65 miles an hour, Just after passing the signal, he saw a tremendous cloud of dust ahead of him and a coach which he described as somersaulting in the air with a twisting movement. He closed the controller and instantaneously made an emergency brake application. He eventually came to a stand around 160 metres short of the wreckage and, well, immediately went to the signal to call for help, but the line didn't work and the signal had no light. 
Fitzpatrick sent his guard to protect the line and asked a passenger to run to a nearby housing estate to call for help. Driver Kilpatrick then went with railway officials travelling on his train to see if they could assist those in the derailed service. The contact from the train which had come upon the wreckage was not the first sign in the signal box that the world had all gone wrong down the line. At 17.55, just after the train passed through Polmont, all of the track circuit indications became illuminated and telephones began to ring. Signalman Martin was on duty, and his immediate reaction was, well, it must have been caused by vandalism, so he replaced all the signal switches to danger. A few minutes later, though, at 18.02, he received a telephone message saying that there'd been a derailment and that there might be fatalities. His training kicked in, and he called for the emergency services. Eight minutes later, he then received a second, far less pleasant telephone message saying that there were definitely fatalities. The disastrous nature of the accident at Polmont was already becoming apparent. 44 passengers received first aid following the accident. 14 passengers and three railway staff were taken to hospital for treatment. 13 people, however, would never finish their journeys home. They lost their lives suddenly and unexpectedly as the carriages of their train scattered in a Scottish cutting. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Polmont was a shock to the system for the industry, and it raised some serious concerns. Cattle finding its way onto the tracks was not a massively unlikely occurrence, and the vast majority of the railway travels through the countryside. It would be fair to say that a relatively decent proportion of the countryside plays host to pastoral farming, and beasts of all shapes and sizes can be found very close. Major King of Her Majesty's Railway Inspectorate was the man in charge of answering the questions on everyone's lips. Firstly, why had the cow managed to derail the train somewhat heavier and more substantial than it? And indeed, why was a cow on the line in the first place? Secondly, had there been any opportunities missed to prevent this accident? And thirdly, and probably most importantly, once the reasons for the disaster were understood, how could a repeat be prevented? (laughs) 
Since the earliest days of the railway, the potential interaction with animals has been a consideration. I mean, if you were to picture your really stereotypical early American steam locomotive, have a think about that pointed snowplow looking thing sat there at the front. Helpfully, it was known as a cowcatcher. I think a pilot would probably be the, the real term, but everyone called them cowcatchers. Admittedly, I feel as though the open ranges of the Old West might lead to more cow versus train scenarios, but I would say it demonstrated an acknowledgement and understanding that this was a risk. First and foremost, the railway goes to great efforts to prevent cattle and carriages from occupying the same space. The vast majority of the network is flanked by fences at either side, and the boundary fences serve several purposes, but livestock control is certainly an important consideration. Well, trespass control as well, but it's really just livestock of a different nature sometimes. Even at points where animals might be supposed to end up on the line, say at a crossing on a farm track, farmers must call the signaller before crossing, and after all, the animals are safely across. So when it was clear at Polmont that a cow had been involved, it became very important to understand just how it had arrived on the tracks. They didn't have to look far on the Glasgow side of the site of the accident. There's a former footpath level crossing there known as West Quarter Level Crossing. The crossings were closed in 1981 and fencing was erected in place of the gates on both sides of the line. However, the existence of housing on the north side and a recreational area to the south, it led to constant trespass over the line at the site of the crossing and the fencing was continuously repetitively damaged there and it frequently had to be repaired. Even the permanent way engineers that were responsible for this section of track knew that at West Quarter Level Crossing, the fencing was very difficult to keep intact. The fencing belonged to the district council, but the railway staff reported damage to the council and patched the fence until they were able to come along and carry out the repairs. Temporary repairs would be done on the same day as the damage was reported. Following the accident, investigators looked at the fencing on the side of the line. There were gaps at the level crossing, and the fencing had been damaged between the level crossing and the tunnel at three different points. Investigators thought that an animal might have been able to get onto the line through the damaged level crossing fencing, and it looked like this was the most likely cause of the bovine trespass. In any case, understanding how the cow ended up on the track was only half of the battle. In the ten years before Palmont, there were over a thousand collisions between trains and animals, about a hundred a year. Around two-thirds of them involved cows, bulls, etc. The remainder were smaller animals such as sheep, but only 24 of the thousand had actually led to derailments taking place. Well, we could actually pick that data apart even further and look at some geographical trends in much more detail. On the section of line from Glasgow to Pullmont, there had been a total of seven occasions in the past five years when cattle had gained access to the line and been struck by trains. Two of them were between Falkirk and Polmont, on this very section of line. On three of the seven occasions, the leading coach of a push-pull train had struck the animal, and on the other occasions, either a locomotive or the coach of a demu that was leading, a diesel multiple unit, and there had been no derailments in any of these accidents. So why had there been such a dramatic derailment on this occasion? As ever... Understanding the mechanics of a derailment is made all the more easy by looking at the markings left behind. Debris and detritus made it clear where the, the point of the impact was. 
Not to go into too much detail, but 8 metres of the track on the left-hand side was coated in animal fat and tissue, and the track on the right, well, that was coated in the contents of the animal's first stomach. Four metres into that 8 metre section, a mark suddenly appeared on the top of the left-hand and right-hand rail. This mark showed the flanges of the wheels had suddenly been lifted and dropped onto the railhead, and over the next five metres, the mark moved from the right-hand side to the left-hand side. It showed that the leading wheels had ridden over the top of the rails at this point. They then ran for 98 metres derailed, as they were, up until the point that the right-hand wheels collided with the left-hand rail. They'd moved all the way across to the left-hand side and collided with the left-hand rail. At that point, the rail was turned onto its side following the impact. From this point onwards, both rails were quite heavily fractured, but it's not clear which vehicles exactly did the damage. The first and second carriages then completed their deadly pirouettes to the left and the right, demolishing the walls which lined the top of the cuttings and colliding with the trees nearby. Understanding the pattern of the derailment showed where all the wheels left the track, but it still didn't quite answer how the 400 kilo animal had managed to derail a 33 ton deep yeso, let alone a 315 ton train. If you need to know about something, it's best to ask an expert. And so they did. British Rail and the Rail Inspectorate, well, they do rail crashes and they do them very well, but not so much animals, I guess. They drafted in the expertise of Dr. Thompson, the senior lecturer in the University of Glasgow's veterinary pathology department. He would expect that if the train collided with the animal at 85 mile an hour, it wouldn't run it over, so to say, it would... But the animal would actually virtually disintegrate and the largest part left would probably be, say, a hind leg, complete with the muscle, the fat, the bone. He considered that the larger parts of the animal would probably be surprisingly tough. And what had to be considered was the possibility that some part of the animal could get between a rail and the and the wheels or beneath a, rail, a wheel flange and lift it just enough to clear the rail. He also mooted that the fact the left-hand wheel had had more animal matter on it meant that there was possible pieces of the beast that had been dragged along the track. and There were no visible animal remains on the bogey or on the coach which supported it, the theory that the animal would really have just disintegrated. Cheerfully, though, he, he does note that there was a strong smell of stomach contents which had spattered all over the bogey. It was decided using the evidence provided by Thompson, plus the markings on the track, that some part of the animal had passed beneath the leading wheels of the train and lifted them enough, causing them to leave the rails. There were certainly questions, however, as to why this vehicle and not others had been derailed so effectively. One factor that probably came to play was axle loading. When a locomotive such as the Class 47 was leading a train, there was a lot more weight to displace, Each of the six axles on the 47 had an axle load of 19 to 20 tonnes. So that's this 115-ton locomotive. The weight of it split out across the six axles, setting two sets of threes on the bogies. 19 to 20 tonnes. So anything that was to lift those bogies, those axles specifically, sorry, anything that lifted those axles had to be capable of lifting 19 tonnes. The DBSO's axle loading was, well, significantly less. 
8.4 tonnes. Therefore, significantly less force was needed to lift the wheels from the rails. Now, multiple units are relatively low axle load vehicles, and they can travel at reasonably high speeds without disastrous consequences. The severity of the accident was realistically far more a result of the topography in the area that it took place. The cutting had relatively shallow sides, so it didn't particularly contain the derailed vehicles and allowed them to climb up. The presence of trees to the left of the line caused massive damage to the leading vehicle, and that's what forced its rear end into the leading end of the second, which triggered its climb of the opposite cutting side. Following the accident, though, there were some fairly prominent questions asking whether or not push-pull operation with a lightweight control car at one end, which was being propelled at nearly 100 mile an hour, was safe. Some people, some passengers, some victims and others, well, they levelled serious criticism against BR for the practice, but the report was fairly unequivocal in its findings. King wrote... I have noted that this is the only accident report recorded since 1948, and probably for many years before then, in which the collision between an animal and a train has led to passenger fatalities. It is not the only collision recorded between a DBSO and cattle, but there is very limited experience in the outcome of collisions between low axle load vehicles and cattle at speeds over 70 miles an hour. However, in terms of economics and efficiency... Push-pull working, such as on the Edinburgh-Glasgow line, offers considerable advantages. It also reduces the hazard to staff engaged in coupling and uncoupling for locomotive changes. He also commented, There was some concern that the outcome of the accident might have been made worse because of the mass of the locomotive at the rear of the train, or a slight delay in braking at the locomotive. I am certain that this concern is largely unfounded. We always like to know whether opportunities were missed to prevent accidents. And unfortunately, this accident will not leave you disappointed in this respect, although probably disappointed because there was an opportunity that was missed. When driver tenant brought his train around the corner and was confronted with the sight of a cow on the line, it was a complete surprise. He had received no prior warning that this would take place and had not reduced his speed, braced himself or taken any evasive action. But of course he couldn't have done any of this. At 85 mile an hour, something like this could only ever be a surprise as the line was unveiled around each corner. Unless, of course, somebody else already knew that a cow was in the area. At quarter past five in the evening, 15 minutes before Tennant brought his train out of Edinburgh, another driver, McCall, was leaving Glasgow with a different train. He brought the train as far as Falkirk, and then five minutes late, he departed and passed through the part of the land just to the west of Polmont. Travelling at around 30 mile an hour, he caught a glimpse of the cow on the other side of the line, up on the bank. He decided to report this during the booked stop at Polmont because he didn't see any actual danger at that moment because the cow was clear of the line. Two or three minutes after passing the animal, he stopped his train at Polmont Station and the time was now 17.52. And when he arrived there, he told his assistant to tell the staff that care must be taken as there was a cow on the down line. 
17.52 minutes before the accident took place. In fact, this was the stationary train which Tennant had passed at Polmont. McCall didn't consider giving any warning about the animal to Tennant. He explained to investigators that had there been a herd of cattle or if the cow had actually been on the line, he would have acted differently. He would have stopped his train at the nearest signal, put down detonators and track circuit operating clips and informed the signalman by telephone. But he didn't. McCall made an assessment that the animal did not constitute any immediate danger. It's now clear how wrong that assessment was. But would it be fair to level criticism against him now after, well after we all know what happened. Realistically, probably not. When he gave evidence to the investigators, he clearly outlined the actions he would have taken had the creature been on the line proper. His decision was understandable under the auspices of the rulebook, specifically section H383. If the driver observes something not of immediate danger to trains, he must report it at the first suitable opportunity and two minutes later he was bringing his train to a stand at a station with staff. Had he believed that there was a danger to oncoming trains, the section immediately before this one, 382, gave the answer as to what he could have done. If, however, the driver sees cattle on the line, or the safety of trains travelling in the opposite direction is endangered, he must sound the horn and exhibit a red hand signal to any train approaching on that line. And this is something that he could have done at Palmont, as the other train passed. Or prior to the station, he could have stopped his train at one of the signals, placed protection on the other line, had all the signals set back to danger for the section. Although, both of those options would have been contingent on him believing that the cow posed a danger to the train, which he didn't. A missed opportunity, and one that I'm sure played on his mind for some time after. Carrying on from the fact that the cow was not perceived to be a danger due to where it was within the railway boundary, it was clear to investigators that uh, this was one which could be immediately resolved. One of the recommendations issued in the report was always going to deal with this matter. Major King asked the British Railways Board to amend the section of the rule book that dealt with animals on the line. He told them that an essential element of the rule must be that any large animal inside the boundary fence must be treated as an immediate danger to trains. I can't believe anyone would even begin to argue with that after the events of Paulmont, and it turns out that the board agreed so much that by the time the report was issued, in February 1985, the amendment had already been published. And indeed, it's, well, it's still very much included even now. And one of the things that I do like about railway safety and this, the whole concept of corporate memory is being able to draw links between the past and the guidance. The exact phrasing in the rulebook as of today, and I logged in, I checked the current version online on the RSSB's website to make sure, is this. A cow, bull, or large animal within the boundary fence, even if it is not an immediate danger to terrains. That addition, that bracketed, even if it is not an immediate danger to terrains, that is a result of what took place at Polmont nearly 40 years ago. The second part of the accident prevention is, is far, well, fairly more complicated. 
we know that the mechanics of how a relatively small and insignificant creature, when compared to a train, caused the carnage that we saw here. But how do we prevent it taking place again? Well, that's going to take a little bit of work. There were two main ways that King considered that British Rail could make the DBSOs safer in collision with cattle. The first would be to increase the axle loading weight of the vehicles. As a reasonable target, he suggested the, the loading the axle loading weight of a HST power car, 17 tonnes. He discovered that the B4 bogey on which the Mark II coach body was currently mounted was 8.4 tonnes of axle load. Actually, that was about the limit that that bogey could handle. So to increase this further would require the use of a B5 bogey, which can operate at an axle load of up to 12 tonnes. And in turn, to accomplish that, that would need to modify the body of the DBSO quite substantially to accommodate about 8 tonnes worth of ballast at the leading end. And there would also have to be modifications to the brakes, among some other bits and bobs. And all of those modifications, well, that was going to come at some considerable cost and not even meet that target load. It would still be 5 tonnes an axle below it. The use of a locomotive bogey was considered, but again, that would require some major redesign at the leading end of the coach. Not only so that the bogey could be fitted to it, but actually so that it could accommodate the ballast to add the weight in. What it turned out as was that to achieve an axle load significantly above 12 tonnes, well, that would mean designing and building a completely new vehicle, the cost of which would be in excess of £200,000 per vehicle. To put that in context, that's over six hundred and sixty grand today. So if you can't increase the axle loading, then how do you safeguard the DBSO wheels in case they collide with an obstacle? Let's go back to the idea of the cowcatcher that we mentioned earlier. The British Railways Board designed a deflector which is mounted on the coach frame and could sustain a load of 30 tonnes at its lowest point on each side. The centre portion is parallel to the headstock of the vehicle with two wings that are well, slightly swept back. The 30 tonnes was calculated as being the force exerted on the deflector when a 90 kilogram piece of animal is accelerated to 100 mile an hour in a distance of about 300 mil, which works on to be about half the width of a cow. The mounting of the deflector was designed to allow it to collapse in a safe and designed manner when it was overloaded, so it wouldn't just break off, and that feature was designed to reduce the risk of the deflector itself becoming the thing that derailed the train. The underside of the deflector was set to be at around about 23 centimetres above the rail height, and that's for an, a, an empty DBSO with no loading and brand new wheels. But there was an additional safety feature that was provided by two robust lifeguards, which are a piece of metal which just protrudes downwards to deflect smaller items, which were mounted on the deflector. And that meant that the gap between the deflector and the rail actually was around about 115 millimetres or 11.5 centimetres. On top of that, there was actually some fairly strong recommendations made on a relatively simple and predictable improvement that could have prevented the accident from taking place. Fencing. King recommended that the board should consider the most effective ways of reducing the number of times that large animals get onto the line. That's particularly important where animals were kept adjacent to lines where trains with low axle load leading vehicles ran at speeds in excess of 75 miles an hour, so places like this. 
He actually added that a special survey should be made of the fencing of such lines and the fencing at any potentially weak points, such as bridges, places where animals or trespassers have broken through in the past, should be made animal-proof and trespasser-proof. In addition, he said that when British Rail planned to introduce push-pull operation, improvements to the fencing must be considered as part of the route development prior to implementing the service. Fencing and an adaptation of a technology almost as old as the railway. The two main recommendations for improvement following Palmont were not only or not overly technical, but they would have made enormous improvements had they been in place on the day. the 30th of July 2019, 25 years after the events of this particular Monday evening, survivors, family members of the victims and emergency services personnel once again converged on Palmont. However, this time they met at the station and not the line side. They were joined by members of Falkirk Council and the team from ScotRail. They had gathered to witness the unveiling of a plaque commemorating the accident. The black stone, inlaid with gold text, reads, In memory of the 13 people who died and the 61 who were injured in the Palmont Rail disaster. What happened here on the 30th of July, 1984. Also in acknowledgement of the emergency services and railway workers who attended the scene. David Simpson, Scott Rail's Operations Director, said at the event, Our thoughts are with the friends and family of those who lost their lives 35 years ago, in such a tragic event. It's unimaginable to think that a loved one heading back from home, work, holiday or day out, would not make it back. It's also important to recognise the response to the accident from the emergency services and railway colleagues. In what was extremely traumatic circumstances, everyone involved pulled together with excellent coordination and cooperation. And it's important not to lose sight of the sentiment there. For the people involved in the disaster at Palmont, this was not a risky venture or a daredevil act of faith. This was an everyday activity. People getting the same train they caught every single day on the way back to their families, friends and homes. Some would have chosen their seats in the lead two carriages as they always did, expecting to alight a little time later, as they did every single Monday evening. Palmont was the first time a collision with an animal had taken the lives of a UK rail passenger in 40 years. But just because it didn't happen, clearly didn't mean it couldn't. All we can do after this type of accident is to learn from the disaster and adapt. Try to ensure that every life lost is the last one lost for that reason. If we can't do that, well then we have to ask ourselves if we've failed.
thank you as ever for tuning into episode 24 once again please like share and review come and interact with me on social media twitter or facebook just search for signals to danger or daniel fox rail and if you do want to support the podcast please get yourself over to signals to and look at the support or the shop pages but in the meantime until the next episode travel safe